Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. Today I'm reporting from FIRE's Philadelphia studio. Came down from New York City this morning. And it's uh, Friday, May 11th, but by the time I think people hear this podcast, it'll be later in the month. And that's because I am pre-recording some podcasts with my colleague Aaron over here uh, because I'm heading out of the country to Scotland next week. Yeah, so I uh, won't be recording podcasts there, but I will be (laughs) drinking whiskey and Isla, or Isla, I think is how it's pronounced, uh, pretending I know how to golf at St. Andrews. I do (laughs) not know how to golf. It's been, I think, 15 years since I did that. Uh, but I will hopefully be walking in the footsteps of David Hume and Adam Smith in Edinburgh, people I assume our guest today knows something about. <laughs> We're joined by uh, Professor Keith Whittington, who is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics uh, in the Department of Politics at Princeton University. And notably, he is the author of a new book, Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech. Thanks for being here, Professor. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by a recurring, so to speak, guest, (laughs) my colleague, of course, Samantha Harris, who is FIRE's Vice President of Policy Research. Now, it's my understanding, Sam, that you and Professor Whittington know each other? Yes, I was a student of Professor Whittington's at Princeton (laughs) almost 20 years ago, which I like to say is amazing because I'm only 25, but you know. (laughs) 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 But yeah. uh, So it was in the politics department at Princeton that I really developed my interest in constitutional law, and my first exposure to that was in a constitutional interpretation class that I took with Mm -hmm. Professor Whittington, and he was also my junior paper advisor, although if you held a gun to my head, I probably could not tell you what that paper was about. Um, and I doubt you remember. No, I did not. <laughs> did you spend a lot of time on the First Amendment in that class? Not a ton, probably. Um, I've, I was just started teaching that class, and I mostly borrowed the syllabus my colleagues had used for the class and made only modest adjustments to it. And... There was some First Amendment, but I don't think a tremendous amount of First Amendment. No, because it was sort of one of two classes. There was a civil liberties class, right. too, which I also took that got that into the First into Amendment yeah. issues a lot more. But the, those two classes together were like the uh, the constitutional law department of the Princeton politics department. Well, it's the constitutional law department, I guess. Of Prin- Princeton <laughs> doesn't have a law school, right? That's no. right. No law school. Why is that? Is there a reason? Uh, it's a very undergraduate-focused institution. So okay. um, so everything it has um, is, is has a large undergraduate component, and law schools are hard to fit into that model. And so um, it has an architecture school, but the architecture school is very undergrad-focused. It has a public policy school, but it's very pub- uh, undergraduate-focused. Um, so things that are sort of pure purely graduate professional schools, um, Princeton mostly is avoided. Oh, really? Yeah, my understanding... Yeah, there's no medical school or right. business school or anything like that. My understanding is that law schools are kind of piggy banks for some schools. I guess they bring in a lot of money, or used to. I know there's a decline yeah. in enrollment these days. So. Yeah, used to be. I think now they tend to be more of a drain on universities. <laughs> but, um, but for a long time, they were a bit of a piggy bank. And Princeton has toyed with the idea off and on of having a law school. But, oh, really? Um, uh, yeah, no, it's sort That's of a recurring uh, uh, interest. And... Um, uh, and they always ba- wind up backing away from it. Um, in part, you know, there's some nervousness about starting one because you want to make sure it's a good one if it's going yeah. to be a Princeton Law School. And so uh, the investment to start one. And there's a real concern about um, how it would uh, affect the culture of the place to ha- to create a, a law school that was so different than everything else on well, campus. Well, I, I, I guess that makes sense if you're an undergraduate-focused campus. Uh, right. Avoiding that mission creep that comes with uh, expanding into investments in graduate programs. The alumni are very concerned about avoiding mission creep. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, something we are very focused on here at Fire, too. So. Anyone who's at a nonprofit. I it's mean. and it can be a challenge. It's important to keep focused on, you know, what the core mission is and, and try to stick with it because it's it's easy to let things get away from you. Yeah, well thanks for driving down here to Philadelphia. My today pleasure. To talk about your book, Speak Freely. I'm interested, it's this is the most boring question that an interviewer can ever <laughs> ask anyone, but I'm interested interested in why you decided to pursue this sure. book? Because there have been a couple of books on right. this topic. Right. Uh, Gilman and Chemerinsky, for example, 
have one that came out at almost the same time right. as yours. So w why did you decide? To, was there something you had seen at Princeton that, that gave you cause for concern? or? I think less at Princeton than um, other places. I, I, it had been sort of bubbling up in my head for quite some time, I think, as... as um, is I worried both about specifically free speech issues and that you sort of see across, um, across the nation as a whole, sort of at other universities, more really than Princeton, of, um, of uh, conflicts over free speech, universities being more restrictive of free speech um, than they ought to, um, students um, engage in behavior that I thought was uh, uh, potentially inappropriate in terms of how they engage in protest and the like. Um, and, and in that context, I was looking around for um, something we could use at Princeton to um, sort of uh, help guide students through some of these issues. And one thing I was a little frustrated by was there didn't seem to be a book that really focused on um, the normative issues. Why should you care about free speech? How, why should you value it? What were the principles um, that you ought to be um, committed to? Instead, a lot of the books talking about campus free speech issues were more descriptive of problems that had occurred. Um, um, and so I was a little surprised there didn't seem to be anything that was very uh, normative that really laid out the principles um, and tried to apply them um, to this context, and and so eventually I say, well, maybe I'll try writing one then. Um, and the other concern I had that sort of been building over time was sort of a um, concern about uh, the appreciation of universities um, that that um, politicians and parents and even students seem not to fully understand what universities are really all about, what the core mission of a university was. Um, and I think that has negative consequences in lots of other contexts, but it, but it also has implications for thinking about free speech. And so, so in the background was this sort of, uh, uh, sort of longer concern about um, uh, do people really appreciate um, why colleges exist, what they do, what you ought to do when you get there. Um, and, and so the book was a way of trying to pull those two things together. Um, I should note that, that Howard Gilman is a sometimes co-author of mine um, who wrote with Erwin uh, Chemerinsky a campus free speech book, and I was unaware that Howard was actually working on it at the time. And so <laughs> so I, he's now a chancellor at um, University of California at Irvine, and I sent him a, a draft of the manuscript in part to get his perspective from the position of a leader in, a, in, in higher education about how to think about these issues. And he said, what happens? I have a book that's sort of in oh, process. No way. It's like, oh, that's awkward. <laughs> well, I mean, let's start at the beginning. And Sam, I want to get your perspective on this. What is the mission of a university? You're at a private university, Princeton, so it's not bound by the First right. Amendment. It's bound by whatever values uh, it has um, you know, laid out mm -hmm. as guiding principles. Um, and FIRE's position is that to the extent it promises free right. speech, uh, it should live up to those, those principles. Uh, I heard a podcast with Sam Harris and Nicholas Christakis uh, from Not Yale. me, the other Sam Harris. The other <laughs> Sam Harris. This is Samantha Harris. <laughs> we did a debate earlier in the month, and we were concerned one of the debaters couldn't be there, the most famous one, Andrew uh -huh. Sullivan. Uh -huh. uh, he ended up pulling through for us, but Sam was our stand-in. And we were like, <laughs> we could just say Sam Harris is standing yeah. in, and people there think it's the, uh, right. the Sam and Harris. And if Sam Harris is listening to this, we still want you to come on this podcast. I want to interview you <laughs> for this podcast and do Sam Harris on Sam Harris. That's like go. my... You know, yeah, well, we reached out to him. If we have any <laughs> listeners out there that can get in touch with him, we run, so many of those circles we run in. Uh, he's, 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 uh, I guess, running in as well, but he's maybe running in different directions because yeah. we're never running into each other. But uh, we'd love to have him on here. So, the purpose of a university, Nick Christakis on Sam Harris's podcast said, in his mind, it's the dissemination, preservation, and creation of knowledge. And for those of us who care about free speech, it's it's in the marketplace of ideas, those, you almost can't do those three things without those values in place. But right. there are other universities, such as Liberty Brigham Young, that have a theological mission that place uh, certain um, theological precepts and principles above uh, the, uh, I guess, the search for truth wherever it leads, um, right. because their, their opinion would be, well, you know, um, to the extent that we believe in a creator and there's any evidence against that, um, you know, that runs contrary to our mission. So I'd like to hear from both of you about that, and then we can take that next step and and, and look at the, the, the principle of free speech more generally. Right. Um, well, for me generally, I think, and, and I want to be specific here, that I'm talking about what I would call sort of a traditional four-year liberal arts university. I mean, obviously, there are many colleges where you go to prepare for a very specific career, and so Trade the schools. goals... Right. Uh, the, the goals there may be different. But when I think of sort of the conventional liberal arts college experience, I think ideally it should not only 
you know, give students a broad grounding in a lot of different ideas um, and, and, you know, parts of history and things like that, but should also teach students how to argue for their positions. You know, not what to think, but how to think in a way, how to argue. I mean, this is something I think, you know, law school does very well, um, where you are often forced to take uh, an argument you don't agree with, for example, in a moot court setting and, and argue it. And I, I fear that one of the worst side effects of uh, you know, the, the loss of free speech and, and the feeling that a lot of people, you know, we've done, we did a poll recently where a lot of students um, reported self-censoring in the classroom. Um, and we know some faculty, particularly faculty whose coursework touches on sensitive topics, are feeling I those pressures too. I want to talk about too. faculty, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest uh, losses there is that students are losing the opportunity to really sharpen their own argumentation skills and become the most effective advocates for whatever their positions may be. Um, you know, I always, the way I've started to put it is, you know, if, if all you know about a conservative's point of view is what you read in Mother Jones, and if all you know about a liberal's <laughs> point of view is what you read on Breitbart, then you're really only getting the most straw man version of that argument. And when you actually meet someone who's well-informed and thoughtful and, and makes a compelling argument for their point of view, you're going to come up short if you haven't had the opportunity to really meaningfully engage with uh, you know, views that you disagree with. The, I love that point. I was at Nadine Strawson's book launch at mm -hmm. Barnes and Noble in Manhattan what was that, earlier this week. And I met a student at Columbia who's there as uh, on a scholarship from uh, some Scandinavian country. And she went back home and was talking with her brother who believes the earth is flat. He's an actual flat wow. earther. Uh, I've never met one, right. uh, but apparently her brother is. And I, I think there was a poll going around social media recently that said that found that like a surprising number of people believe the Earth is flat. And she was talking about how he was presenting all of these arguments for why the Earth is flat, and she had nothing to come back with him, back against him, because she's never been presented with those ideas. Right. She's never needed the rhetorical skills to confront. Uh, something that we've just known to be false for uh, centuries at right. this point. And John Stuart Mill talks about there's nothing more dangerous to an intellectual uh, than the deep slumber of a decided opinion. And she was like, the one thing you can almost take for granted about conspiracy theorists, people who believe gravity doesn't exist or that the earth is flat, is that they're going to have the skills to argue against you mm. because you don't just arrive at that opinion <laughs> out, right. at a whim. Uh, you, you've, you've read all the arguments on the other side in the way that those of us who know that the earth is round have not. So right. it's um, that's a good point. <laughs> so that really that was the first time anyone really had the experience uh, that John Stuart Mill so eloquently talks about in On Liberty, uh, but. But Professor Whittington, I want to hear your thoughts on the purpose of a university, and and you believe, as Sam believes, that it, that free speech, the the core of free speech's value to a university is mainly in the liberal arts institutions. Yeah, I think the liberal arts institutions are are sort of the classic starting point for thinking about it. But I do think if the if we think of the central mission of all universities, although they're going to pursue them somewhat differently, is being about. Um, um, advancing and disseminating uh, knowledge, um, ultimately, um, uh, then, then the ability to um, engage in skeptical inquiry, to um, test unconventional ideas, to be able to argue um, for those ideas uh, in a classroom, to hear debate um, about a wide range of views, um, is, is crucial to that mission. And the liberal arts are the sort of uh, classic home of that. Um, and I'd say law schools are sort of very familiar with that kind of approach and thinking about um, um, arguing from both sides and being able to hear sort of the full range um, of uh, positions. But it's also crucial ultimately to how the natural sciences operate, engineering operates, uh, and the like as well. They're asking different questions, but they're also concerned with trying to push the boundaries of what we know. Um, um, to follow the uh, trail of evidence wherever it leads um, and then communicate um, what they've learned um, to others. And sometimes what they do is also deeply controversial and they also need space then to be able to explore those ideas and push those ideas um, as far as they uh, can. And so um, while the process of educating students in chemistry is going to look very different than the process of educating students in philosophy. Um, and so there are going to be differences about how that plays out um, uh, across different disciplines, for example, and as a consequence across somewhat different institutions. 
that's our core commitment that what universities are all about and what everybody on campus is, is really committed to um, of um, uh, pursuing the truth as best you can in your particular area um, of, of interest and then following the arguments and evidence uh, wherever they go, um, even in that winds up overturning very cherished beliefs and ideas, if it winds up challenging um, uh, conventional views, um, then that's uh, part of what you ought to be doing and it's appropriate. And as you say, some universities, I think, would try to um, cabin that a little bit. So religious institutions, for example, might say, well, look, there's some real boundaries on what we're willing to um, uh, question here. And there are some things that are sort of off the table. Um, and that's a limitation as to uh, the extent to which those universities are fully committed um, to that core mission. But I think most other universities at least um, uh, claim to be fully committed to that core mission, whether they're public universities or private universities. And, um, and, and so I think from a public university standpoint, you do have to worry about sort of what does law require? What will some judge tell you you have to do? But for those of us, for example, who live and work on, in, on, in private university campuses, there's still a good reason to care about free speech, and it's because of the project we're engaged with in that campus. And if we sacrifice um, those principles of free speech, we're ultimately going to be undercutting and subverting um, what it is we're trying to accomplish on the campus in the first place. Yeah, one of the, the things I've noticed over the years of doing this work is that a lot of these conflagrations that we've seen happen surrounding freedom of speech have happened within the humanities departments. Right. Uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned chemistry, right. biology. You don't see so much of the controversies stemming from those areas, perhaps because the, the arguments don't, don't rest on people's identities so right. much. And uh, I, I, I think you would have expected me to bring this up, but there was a controversy at Princeton this past semester involving uh, emeritus professor of anthropology, Lawrence Rosen, who was teaching a class called Anthropology 212, Cultural Freedoms, Hate Speech, Blasphemy, and Pornography. It was a right. class specifically devoted to discussions of tab taboo topics, right. controversial hate speech, blasphemy. Uh, presumably the students knew this when they were going into the class, but he, um, he, uh, he presented a theoretical scenario in the class, and I'm reading from Inside Higher Ed here. Uh, in which he asked students to think about cultural taboos as an introduction to the course. And he asked, which is worse, a white man physically assaulting a black man or calling him the N-word, to which I guess students took offense because he used the word nigger and then walked out of the course, um, causing controversy on campus and ultimately the cancellation of the course. Uh, I should note that the chair of the anthropology department at Princeton, I, I believe also a woman of color, mm -hmm. came to his defense vociferously. I mean, what yep. she wrote about him was as eloquent a defense of free speech and um, pedagogy as, as I had ever seen. And Princeton right. itself came to his defense and I think urged him not to cancel the course, but he was an emeritus professor. Perhaps he just didn't want to deal with it. He was stepping in for a friend who I believe was ill or, or couldn't teach the class. Uh, that year, but it speaks to some of the concerns that we've seen surrounding students' response to controversial speech. Right. Or uh, We had a case at Brandeis, which Sam will very much remember, in which a professor, I forget what he was teaching, uh, spoke about the word, spoke, used the word wetback in the context of describing and criticizing right. what it means. And for that, he had a monitor placed in his right. class and he was yeah. found guilty of racial harassment. So it's uh, I concern, I, I suspect, and you can speak to this better than I have, that the professors have um, just, you know, how do, will the students respond? There, it seems as though there needs to be a certain amount of resilience to approach right. these subjects, and we're seeing more and more uh, students take offense to them. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a concern, right? I mean, that students um, come to classes with their own expectations and, and experiences, um, and uh, you know, one thing we all be trying to do in universities is... Um, uh, make sure students understand what it is they're getting into um, and um, what they should be expecting when they're entering into classes and, and, and how those classes are ultimately being conducted. So as you say, then that particular class, for example, Professor Rosen was teaching um, at Princeton, it was clear what the subject matter was, um, clear the kinds of topics that would have to be um, debated. I'm sure students were drawn to it precisely for that reason. Um, but nonetheless, they didn't necessarily have a full expectation of what they were going to in fact encounter um, in, in that class. And, and 
that's probably not completely unreasonable. They're students. They haven't yet for fully experienced um, what the range of classes are going to look like and haven't seen everything that's going to take place in a classroom. Um, but part of what we need to do is be able to convey to students that, look, you're going to be sometimes made uncomfortable um, in a class, um, uh, especially on some kinds of topics. Um, we're going to be... Um, exploring ideas and issues um, and, and language um, that um, uh, you might find uh, discomforting and unsettling and challenging uh, in a very basic way. And, and um, if, if you're not willing to engage in that task, then maybe this isn't the right program for you or course of study for you. Um, but if you're going to embark on it, you should recognize what it is you're, you're getting into. Yeah, Carolyn Rouse, who is the chair of the anthropology department, right. um, quoted in this Inside Higher Ed article as saying, we've met with students and they've recognized or said, all we need is scaffolding or more preparation. Not that the word shouldn't be used, but they need to know they can trust the professor to be able to hear it and not think he's presenting it as people who might really use it would as a racial slur. Right. Sam, what was the reaction from alumni? Did you hear anything about this and, and the controversy that surrounded it? I also want to hear from you, Professor, yeah. about what, what people were saying on campus. Right. Yeah, I, you know, I definitely discussed it with some alums. I think, you know, generally speaking, it was just, I was just very disappointed that he so quickly um, canceled the course because I think, you know, one of the big problems right now is this self-censorship, both of students and faculty. Um, and I think that, you know, Princeton handled it very admirably. I really think so. I mean, we've seen far too many other schools, I think, leave faculty and students twisting in the wind um, for similar for similar situations, so they handled it admirably. But someone at some point needs to to be with to be willing to withstand um, the pressure. Um, you know, we talk about when we talk about the importance of free speech on campus. We talk about you know the strong student model and students need, needing to be able to hear things that offend them. And um, you know, I, I would say the same of faculty. I had an experience at Princeton. I went there to speak couple of years ago now on a panel. I was on a panel with Peter Singer, um, and I, there, were, there was a student, um, I think editor of the Nassau Weekly maybe, and, and a, a student member of the Black Justice League. And it was a difficult conversation. I mean, um, you know, people in the audience were pretty hostile to myself and Peter Singer, and in particular said some things to Peter Singer that, that really surprised me, but it was... Um, what, did, what, did, what were they responding to? Just the argument just the, for the, free speech in the general? The argument for free speech divorced from, um, you know, a discussion of power dynamics. Um, you know, this is an argument, I think it was one of the first times I had really heard of it. Now it's one that we're really starting to see becoming more mainstream on campus. I'm thinking of like Ulrich Baer's uh, editorial in the New York Times that really the, the idea that censoring some people is necessary to level the playing field and allow other people to participate in the marketplace. Well, of ideas. this is the idea of Herbert Marcuse, the repressive right. tolerance idea that right. neutral principles, which is what, you know, the, the, the idea that we don't discriminate based on viewpoint is it gives the benefit to those already in power uh, to which the system already benefits. And, um, you know, whether you think that's uh, a fair characterization, characterization of how the principle works, these students ultimately believe, therefore, that we need to, you know, do a little bit more balancing with our principles. Professor, what, what I mean, what, what, uh, let's finish the story. I mean, oh, what so did the I was just going to say? say, you know, it was an interesting experience for me because it was my first experience myself feeling really uncomfortable. I mean, it was, a, you know, a lot of people in the audience were very hostile towards me. Um, and I felt uncomfortable and I had to stand up there and, you know, continue making the arguments I believed in, in spite of feeling, you know, very uncomfortable and, and very much like I was being judged for the positions I was holding. And it was, you know, it definitely made me realize that, you know, that discomfort, you know, that, that discomfort that we ask students to feel and that we ask, you know, maybe faculty to feel if they're going to keep teaching a course that contains difficult material is a real thing that people have to contend with. And it's not easy. Um, so in some ways, I think as a free speech advocate, it was it was good for me to experience it because it was a good, you know, what now I have a better sense of when we're asking that of other people, you know, what are we asking of them when we are asking them to, to really feel uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it also showed me that, yeah, it can be done. I mean, you know, I think the, the most disheartening thing to me about that experience, and I, you know, it was one of the things that continues to concern me about, um, you know, people arguing against free speech on campus was that, you know, they started asking a lot of questions that there weren't really time to answer, um, or that sort of were, you know, taking us away from the panel discussion topic, and mm -hmm. that the moderator was trying to get us back on topic. And I said, listen, you know, I'm free after the talk. Like, I, I want to hear more from you guys. I'd like to talk about this. If you want to talk about it afterwards, please stay. 
and no one did. And that's what was frustrating is I feel like, you know, I think on both sides of, of a lot of debates, people have this feeling that they've just, they, they've arrived at the truth. They don't need to hear the other side. It's not worth hearing. And that lack of an interest in dialogue, which, you know, we saw repeated, for example, when Josh Blackman was recently, right. um, protesters disrupted his speech at CUNY Law. And not only did they disrupt him, they disrupted someone who was there to engage with him, someone who was there to engage with him critically. They yelled at that student, stop debating. And, you know, that kind of real sort of, no, you know, we don't need to hear right. the other side. We don't need to engage with it. We know what's right and, and you're wrong, I feel like is very, very dangerous. on the Someone drew a comparison, I think, surrounding the Christina Hoff Summers um, protest. Uh, you know, the, the effort to deplatform someone is really no different substantively from book burning. Uh, it's just the ideas are presented in, in, in the spoken form rather than the written form. And I think there was something, there's something to that. And you speak about how students have sort of arrived at the end of history at that truth <laughs> to, 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 to appropriate a, uh, a, uh, an essay written in, right. in the 1990s. Uh, and John Stuart Mill talks about this too. He says, uh, to censor is to assume that your certainty is the same thing as absolute certainty. And I think that uh, runs directly contrary to what we would want from any intellectual, the idea that you're always keeping a skeptical mind, questioning your premises, um, and, and engaging with those with whom you disagree in order to, to bolster your ideas. But what, what was the response on Princeton's campus to this controversy? Do you think outside of the faculty, were students, where, where did students land? And I, I hate to paint with a broad brush, of course, yeah, I mean, it's hard to, to know where, where students as a whole um, land on this. I think that, um, I, I think lots of students as, as well as faculty sort of understood um, why the students in the classroom were sort of taken aback and um, upset um, by what they had encountered. It's um, uh, a, a somewhat natural response. Um, I think um, both students and faculty on campus were um, surprised then as to how the students um, um, expressed the, their um, uh, surprise at, at um, what had taken place and the. Um, uh, Are yeah, faculty the, is faculty walking on eggshells? Do you feel? Uh, you, I don't do think in general. No, it's okay. and so and I and I think part of what and and I think that's part of the concern of what comes out of um, an episode like that is sort of what's the lesson learned, right? And so one concern is well, the class got canceled, and so is the lesson learned. Um, that it's possible to shut down classes and shut down certain kinds of conversations um, if if you um, find them uh, inappropriate or offensive or disturbing in various ways. Um, and I think the university has done as much as it can to try to um, emphasize that, um, uh, look, this is on the table as, as a possibility of what can happen in classes. Um, you should understand that and expect that. And if it's, if it's appropriate uh, in the context of a particular class, then, then you should expect to encounter that kind of language and, and other language and other ideas um, that you're going to find offensive and challenging. And, and, and um, that's what we do. Um, at Princeton. And, and I think it's important for the university to be very firm um, about that and try to explain to students why that's true. Um, uh, and I think in that sense, then the faculty feel reasonably confident that the university itself has their back. I think the challenge is how students react. And I think that's a, but, but that's a general challenge of trying to teach in a classroom, right? That you, you, you don't want to lose your students um, and you want to be able to lead them through the conversation you're trying to um, um, get them through and and you want them to grapple with the ideas and not simply run away from them and and so you know you always have to be somewhat conscious of, of where the students starting from and how do you get them to the point of being able to grapple with those ideas um, uh, effectively and you know sometimes you fail in trying to make that effort right and so I think um, I think it's important then to be cognizant of sort of what these t current students are thinking and, and where they're coming from. And I don't think the, that then that means, well, you, you don't try to get them to the ideas. You don't try to get them to those arguments. Um, but, but it does require some care as to how you move them along to, to the point of trying to grapple with the set of ideas you want them to grapple with. Yeah. I know I'm not the host, but can I ask a, a follow-up <laughs> question? Yeah, go for it. Because this is something I'm really curious about, and it's just something I'm always trying to get right. at. Do you get the sense as someone who deals with a lot of, works with a lot of students, that there is something in the university environment that is encouraging students to take this, you know, I have right. arrived at the truth view and I don't need to contend right. with opposing views? Or do you feel like they're arriving at college with that 
sense? Because that's something I feel sure. like we're always trying to get at is like, where is this coming from? Well, there, I mean, there is a sense that we've lost an entire generation. Uh, this will be, you know, my concern is that this generation, at least perception of free speech will be shaped by Charlottesville. Right. And that's very concerning to me. And uh, I have some colleagues here who are very worried about it as well and saying, well, you know, it, you know, there's a concern about giving up on this generation and just shooting for the next one. Now, right. But uh, I'll let you answer. I'll let you. I'll let you. Which we can't do at fire because no. that would just be an abdication of of everything that we stand for. But well, I don't think you want to do it in general. I mean, it's it's uh, the thing that really worries me about these campus free speech debates is not only what's immediately happening on the campus themselves, but but what are the sort of ideas that are being shaped that's going to have consequences down the road, right? And so um, I think it's important that you not simply uh, write off a generation of students and say, wow, they're, they're um, committed to a set of very problematic ideas, but eventually they'll graduate and move on and they'll be fine We'll worry about the next set. Um, because eventually they will also become citizens and voters and And that's what Andrew and Sullivan and, says. He says, yeah. um, he made the argument in New York Magazine, which is why we put him on this debate we did in New York City the other day. Uh, is there a campus free speech crisis? He said, you know, we all live on campus right now. He said some of the norms that we've seen develop on campus surrounding due process and free speech are infiltrating right. our justice system and our corporations. And he said, you know, the, the people who said, oh, it's just a phase, oh, it's just campus, this isn't the real world, uh, he said, I'm seeing it in the real world and I haven't been on campus in decades. Right, right. Yeah, no, I don't think those things are contained. And so I think it's important to... Um, I, you know, part of what we all be doing at universities is to educate students um, to, to grapple with ideas seriously. And so I think it's important not to um, turn away from this and dismiss it um, um, as, as just a campus problem that has no larger implications. I think it will have larger implications. And I think likewise, it's important not to simply dismiss this particular generation of students as unusually sensitive or delicate and um, that there are ideological issues at stake here in which there are real ideas and arguments that are at play and and some students are certainly persuaded and dug in um, in, in some positions. And, and that's always true, right? You're always going to encounter um, um, advocates of uh, positions on a whole host of issues um, who are dug in and they aren't going to be very persuadable necessarily. But but it's important not to lose sight of the fact that there is a much larger group of students in this case um, who aren't dug in, who don't know what um, they ought to think about these issues. And so they're open to hearing the arguments. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, it's, it is the case you're not necessarily going to persuade the people who have already come to a committed position um, and they aren't necessarily looking to um, change that position or be open to a conversation about um, how to modify it. Um, but but there's a much broader audience um, of students who don't have a firm position, who are just trying to figure these things out, um, and, and it's important to talk to and them. And they're a lot less vocal. I had an interesting experience recently at, um, I did a KPCC, it was like an NPR mm -hmm. LA live event on specifically on the role of social media and free speech on the campus free speech debate, and there was a student on the panel, a student activist, and one of the things I realized listening to her talk, and it was just something that I think, you know, those of us who are trying to convince current students of the value of free speech maybe need to be aware of, and I certainly feel like this was the first time I'd really thought about it, was you know, the, the role that social media plays, if you're a student activist now and you put yourself out there online, you are deluged with comments yeah. of a nature that a lot of us who say in theory like right. hate speech shouldn't be banned and things like that have not personally been barraged with. And it, it made me realize that that may be in part this this crop of students is having a different experience with free speech because of social media and an experiencing in a way that we maybe didn't. And it made me realize that that's something that we need to, you know, if we want to sharpen our arguments in favor of free speech, we need to consider what it's like to actually live with uh, you know, the kind of speech that exists on social media, which, you know, when it's not harassment, when it's not threats, obviously, I, I believe should be protected. But it's certainly, you know, something that, it's something that made me think and made me realize is perhaps informing the views of students in a way that I wasn't quite aware of. Or just recognize who you're speaking to. I think part of the problem with social media is, especially when you're younger, you don't realize that what you're saying in these fora can reach potentially the entire world. Right. And that's one of the promises, but also the worries about social media. I'm um, producing a doc, I think this is the first time I'm announcing it, a documentary about Ira Glasser, who ran the, uh, who was the executive director of the ACLU for mm -hmm. 
21 years, I believe, 78 to 2001. That's 70, 23 years. I'm not good at math. That wasn't my major. Uh, but I'm asking a lot of these old school civil libertarians, people like Floyd Abrams, like Ira Glasser, uh, like Joel Gora, what is your thoughts? Or what are your thoughts about the internet? Because on the one hand, it's a it's a beautiful way to access information and not and also disseminate information. In the same vein, it also allows for this encourages this mob mentality and the tribalism that um, is so often the concerns of free speech advocates. Uh, and I, I think most of them, Aaron, you can correct me if I'm wrong, said it's, it's, um, it's too soon to say. They say um, a lot of the same concerns that we're having about social media right now were concerns that people had about the printing press uh, and broadcast television. Uh, right. There's always this sort of fear about new technology and it takes a couple decades, uh, if not a couple <laughs> centuries, to sort of uh, catch up with it and, and its consequences. Uh, but I just hope that how we deal with it is a, is a, takes a normative approach and not a legislative one, because I think that could, if we had the Communication Decency Act, um, Section 280, wasn't dealt with in the 90s, I think you would have seen very different internet today and, and a lot less innovation and economic growth mm -hmm. as a result about it. But I think this conversation will continue at Princeton because I have an article in front of me uh, that it's a press release from Princeton that your book has been selected as the pre-read yeah. for 2018. It's a tradition, I'm reading from the press release here, that okay. introduces first-year students to the intellectual life of the university by offering opportunities to engage with a book that students, faculty, and staff read, and I'm sure your publisher is very happy about this because <laughs> each member of the incoming class of 2022 will receive a copy of the book. I don't think we had this tradition when I was no, at Princeton. It, no, actually, it's um, it was an initiative of uh, President Eisgruber's to um, start doing the pre-read at all, and, and and these kind of common reading programs for incoming freshmen have become much more common than they used to be. Um, but but Princeton is. What, five, six years old, I think, now at this point. So Yeah, every copy of the incoming class will get it. Uh, the book will also be distributed to current Princeton undergraduates, graduate students, and faculty, and will also be available to staff by request. And uh, it sounds like they've made you available for a number of conversations on the, the ideas presented in the book over the course of the next school year. So that's kind of a cool thing. Why Do you know that why they chose your book? Was it just an acknowledgement of the stories? I, I read Inside Higher Ed and Chronicle right. Higher Education every morning. And Sam and I were talking with Will on a previous podcast about this. It seems like every morning there's a, there's a story dealing with free speech in some sense. And you, you think about the problems in universities or the concerns, uh, you know, student debt, the rise of adjunct faculty. It seems like free speech uh, <laughs> is what's on the top of everyone's mind. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, Princeton is, is tackling it head on. I think a lot of the controversies that we saw in 2015, 16, and 17 were a result of not getting in front of it uh, in the same way that the University of Chicago did. But I, I'll let you speak to it. I mean, well, how did this come about? Did you know they were going to do this? No, I'm, I'm extraordinarily honored, as you'd expect, of, uh, from uh, President Eisgruber's choice. I mean, so it, it, the, having the pre-read is an initiative that President Eisgruber launched um, when he became president of the university. Um, uh, it, unlike some places, we don't have a big committee that chooses um, uh, these. Is, is basically um, him uh, making the decision as to um, what books he wants to use for it. And so, um, you know, certainly in writing the book, the goal is to write something that, that I thought would be um, accessible and useful um, uh, to college students and parents and others. So it's written with that kind of audience um, in mind. And um, I think as, as uh, President Eisgruber was thinking about um, uh, books for, for um, this coming um, year, he was thinking in part about what kinds of issues are, are is it important for students to be thinking about, and the, and the campus free speech issue is, is, is one of them. Um, uh, and, and moreover, he's become particularly interested in this. I think a lot of college presidents have. I think there's been some sort of eye-opening experiences with some of the attention that some of these episodes have gotten that um, has um, uh, made alumni and, and donors and trustees of universities pay attention, um, has made university presidents pay attention to this issue um, and, and think of it as a more important issue than they might have thought of it uh, as being five years ago, for example. Um, and I think uh, President Eisgruber is among those that has um, 
decided that, that these campus free speech issues are, are, are terribly important to the future of higher education as, as we know it. Um, and connected to that are questions about intellectual diversity and sort of respect uh, and tolerance for um, the fact that people are going to disagree, they're going to have a wide range of views, and those views ought to be represented. Yeah, on the mission campuses. of Jonathan Haidt and Heterodox Academy, right. really, to uh, bolster viewpoint diversity on campus. I think I would be derelict in my duty here at FIRE if I didn't mention that Princeton has two red light speech codes <laughs> and four yellow light speech right. codes. So it's got a lot of work to do to come up. Uh, we all have work to do. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's, I mean, Sam, you are our vice president of policy research. Let's talk about some of these policies. Uh, it has a red light sexual harassment policy that says that unwelcome verbal or physical behavior, which is directed at a person based on sex, gender identity, or gender expression when these behaviors are suffic sufficiently severe and are pervasive to have the effect of unreasonably interfering with an individual's educational well, experience. Wait, can I cut you off there for a second? Yeah, the please part, do because this is a long sentence. No, the, the language that actually... The, the issue is the examples, right? Yeah. Well, no, the issue is also that the policy prohibits not only sexual harassment, right. which generally speaking is not protected speech, but also pro prohibits this very broad category of inappropriate conduct related to sex, gender identity, or gender expression. And it says, mm -hmm. unwelcome conduct that may not fall under sexual harassment or sexual exploitation, but that is sexual in nature. Um, sexually offensive gestures and comments. So it's basically saying we prohibit not only sexual harassment, but also inappropriate conduct that doesn't rise necessarily to the level of sexual harassment. And when you're talking about that, then you're talking about potentially almost anything. Right. Right. Um, and so that's, I think, you know, the, the examples here of, of potentially sexually harassing conduct like sexist jokes or disparaging remarks about sex, I mean, those are concerning, although, you know, if you tie them to Princeton's definition of sexual harassment, which does require conduct that's um, severe and pervasive, uh, you know, is perhaps somewhat less troubling, this broad ban on any inappropriate conduct, which obviously by reference to the comments in here includes verbal conduct, um, is is seriously concerning. And, you know, we've reached out to Princeton before about these policies, and their their attitude has generally been, well, look, we're very supportive of free speech. Um, and I think that's true. I mean, we have not, I don't see a lot of uh, complaints of censorship coming from Princeton. The problem is when you have these policies on the books, there's two problems. One is that they lead to self-censorship, right? You never know how many people have read this policy and said, oof, I better steer clear. Second of all, you can't assume that each administration is going to be as protective of free speech as the next. So when you have a policy on the books that allows a university very broad discretion to punish what off campus would be protected speech, then it's sort of it's a ticking time bomb, right? I mean, it may not be enforced in a way uh, that infringes on free speech by one administration, but it could be by the next. So we always argue very strongly against having these kinds of policies on the books, even when an administration may say, well, we don't enforce that in a way that infringes on free speech rights, which yeah. is, is, is more or less what Princeton has said. And, and like I said, I have every reason to believe that's the case, but the policies still shouldn't be on What's the, the matter with the IT policy? Put you the, on the IT spot. policy <laughs> <laughs> prohibits transmitting any inappropriate images, sounds, or messages um, that violate Princeton's code of civility. And again, very broad discretion. Mm-hmm. I know you didn't write these codes, Professor, but do you, do you want to defend them? <laughs> no, I wouldn't necessarily want to defend them, actually. I think that um, um, both are probably broader than I would prefer. Um, I haven't looked into them um, closely, um, uh, in particular, and, and thought about what the alternative language ought to be that would be preferable. Um, but, but yeah, they do both sweep a little broadly, and, and I think you're right to think that... that um, we ought to be concerned about how these kind of policies are written, both in terms of uh, what the sort of long-term implications are, how they might be administered over time, and also sort of what kind of signals they're sending to students. Although I suspect the chilling um, effect of the um, policy on the books is probably not that big, because I suspect most students haven't uh, delved into the details <laughs> of their codes of conduct. And so probably what's more consequential, I think, for chilling effect issues in particular is... is um, um, how they're actually administered um, on campus, and um, and I would say that that I, as sort of to put on one of my other hats as a political scientist who studies sort of law and courts and how they operate in general, right? It's important not only what the law in the books looks like, but also what law on the ground looks like, and um, 
how policies are actually administered in practice. And so sometimes you can have um, policies that look great as they're, as they're written and yet get administered in ways that are um, um, uh, very abusive and problematic from a free speech perspective and, and likewise vice versa. Um, and I think one thing that Princeton has been very good at is um, making sure that these sort of core academic values about um, free speech and the like um, have penetrated uh, into um, uh, the administrative bureaucracy of the university such that um, administrators who um, are not spending most of their time thinking about scholarship or thinking about classroom conversations. Instead, they're spending most of their time thinking about campus life issues and how uh, students interact with each other um, in dorms and elsewhere. Uh, that nonetheless, they're very self-conscious about these larger set of concerns and as a consequence, I think have been quite good about how they've administered these things in general. And I think that's often a challenge, right? Is how do you get those um, uh, staffers who are on the ground thinking about these disputes but are not thinking about it from the professor, from the um, perspective of a professor, but I was thinking about it from the perspective of, I've got these kids fighting in the dorms. <laughs> and, so, and so how do I get them to get along with one another more effectively? And, um, you know, it's important to constantly have a dialogue then about, okay, yeah, I, I know you have these conflicts in the dorms, but they're dorms on a college campus, and we want to maintain the overall environment of a university that's respectful of the importance of diverse views and free speech, as well as um, people don't get in fistfights with each other. Yeah. It's amazing to me thinking about how these campus bureaucracies have grown, these right. student life bureaucracies have grown since I was in college. I mean, when I was at yeah. Princeton, like, we had an RA who we could go to for issues, and there was some, you know, orientation right. programming and stuff, but, but more or less, you know, we right. were free to do our own thing, which seems, you know, I don't know specifically about Princeton and how that's right, changed, right. but just generally, you know, attending administrators' conferences and things like that, it, you know, that bureaucratic apparatus has grown tremendously on yeah. a lot of campuses, and I, I feel like that's actually related to a lot of, I mean, to me, you know, with more bureaucratization, you have more overregulation of students' lives. And, you know, I, I definitely see the growth in these student life bureaucracies as related to some of what's happening on campus with free speech. Well, what was it? It was in the uh, mid-aughts when administrators outnumbered faculty for the first time at American college and university campuses, something like that? Yeah. No, it's, it's expanded dramatically and it has real consequences for how um, universities um, actually operate and, and how students experience university life, right? I mean, that a significant part of what students are experiencing is not um, the experience of faculty, not the academic experience, not the experience in the classrooms. And of course, that's always been true because part of their experience is fraternities and all that kind of stuff. But a significant part of their experience with the uh, sort of official structure of the university is, is their ex interaction with staff um, and administrators. And um, you know, so it's important, I think, that universities um, not just sort of hive those off and sort of, and, and it's important for faculty not to just sort of imagine, well, they'll take care of themselves and, and not my problem. Um, those those things matter for well, what the culture of the campus is like. It is sort of amazing because now, now that I think about it, I'm like, I don't, I don't remember having contact with a single administrator. I knew my RA and, you know, I, there was, I, there must have been student life. You know, we sometimes right. had like ice cream break study halls during finals right. and in the dining room and things like that. But... I really can't think of any interaction I had with, and you know, maybe that was just because I was like a nerd who never got in trouble. And, you know, but you no, know, I think it's like, genuinely changed, right? I mean, there's, there has been a growth in these things, and, and with the growth of staff has come, um, and, and there's both supply side issues and demand side issues here, but, but um, uh, greater orchestration of, of student um, life, uh, life in general. And I think, you know, these things come in waves on, on college campuses, right? So I think there was a period maybe from the 60s through you know, the 1990s where um, uh, things were relatively lax. Students had a sort of particularly wide open space um, uh, on their own. On the other hand, if you experience um, college in the 1940s or 1950s, um, I suspect it was not filled with staff, but it was filled with a university um, that understood their mission as being much more hands-on um, as to um, how students ought to behave. My dad went to Princeton in the 60s, and you could get, you know, in serious trouble for having a girl in your room after 8 o'clock, right. you know? Yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, I mean, this is, this is unique to the United States. Uh, I studied abroad very, very briefly in, in Italy, and you don't have so much of students' lives tied up in right. the university. We began this conversation by talking about the purpose of a university, and I put it out uh, echoing Nicholas Christakis is the dissemination, preservation, and creation of knowledge. But that doesn't mean that you need a whole student life infrastructure right. to regulate how students interact with each other outside of the classroom. I mean, that's a unique 
American institution that your entire life is encompassed by this enterprise that you pursue for two to four years. Uh, you also see a little bit of this in England as well. And I think part of that, your life being wrapped up in the university, is why you get these free speech controversies. You don't hear about as many of these from the University of Bologna, for example, because, and, you, and we're seeing the, we're seeing the manifest destiny of universities in implementing these policies push further and further off campus. I mean, in the adjudication of Title IX, it no longer rests on whether these things just happen on campus, but in students' private lives with other students off campus uh, is fair game at this point. In the policing of social media, that really has nothing to do with what happens on campus. You can get brought up on cam campus disciplinary charges and investigated. So I, to me, this seems like a uniquely American institution uh, how we approach higher ed, but it doesn't also at the same time seem to me as a necessary approach in order to pursue the core mission of a university. Am I wrong there? No, I don't think it's a necessary approach to how you do universities, but I think it is uh, uh, pretty embedded in how Americans have approached higher education. It's a little hard to imagine um, that we're going to fully pull back from, from all of that. And, and there might also be a benefit to it. I mean, the no, American no universities are the best in the world. There's people, reason people come from across the world to, to study here, and it might be because of the, just the robust culture and immersiveness of the, the education. No, I think there's no question there are benefits to it. And, you know, also, though, it's, it, there are other unique features of universities that I sometimes find get in the way of the core mission. Of, so we think about uh, intercollegiate sports, for example. Mm -hmm. um, which of which not, I participated <laughs> as a track right, athlete. Not yeah. quite a, a, a similar kind of um, phenomenon in, in any place else in the world, right? And so this is sort of a, a uniquely American feature of higher education. Um, and for lots of students, an, an extraordinarily important feature of higher education and what they find uh, deeply attractive. And so um, I think then for universities, there's always a question of how do you balance these other things universities are doing. Sometimes um, those are useful things and sometimes they're beneficial things for students and things students want and appreciate. Um, but how do you um, balance those things without letting them hamper and, and uh, corrode? Um, the central thing universities ought to be doing. And yeah, I think sometimes there's a bit of a challenge as to what people really think the central thing universities ought to be doing. Right? Is it really the case that the core mission, as I've articulated, is about advancing disseminating knowledge or is the core mission something else? And, and for some, I think they think the core mission of the university might be something else. Yeah, well, um, we, we did a study here at FIRE, that Sam tipped her hat to this earlier, where we, we pulled, uh, what was it, like something like 2,500 students on, um, their attitudes about free speech and, and to sort of preface that polling, we, we asked what is the purpose, why, why are you going to college? And most of them said it, to get a job. Right. Uh, which right. I think more uh, intersects with the trade school mission than really necessarily the liberal arts or humanity, ham, ha, humanities mission. I wanna close out this conversation uh, because this podcast will come out at the end of May. Uh, schools will be wrapping up, most, right. fi most schools if they don't operate on the um, quarter system, if they operate on the semester system, will have been done by early May. We haven't seen as many of the large headline-grabbing conflagrations that we right. saw in 2017, and, and we also haven't seen as many commencement disinvitations as we have in past years, Sam. I think part of that um, is a result of university just selecting the most sanitized, uncontroversial, boring right. commencement speakers that they can to, to avoid these. And this is something right. that my colleague Greg Lukianoff predicted in 2014 when this was really capturing headlines. Uh, but as a result, of, have things gotten better on campus this year or have universities just gotten better at avoiding the controversies that would call, cause these conflagrations? I don't know where I land on that. I think right. we are approaching education in a more sanitized, careful way as a result of what happened from 2015 to 2017. I don't know that it's so much got better as we've just gotten better at self-censoring and avoiding controversial <laughs> topics. Yeah, I think it's a little of both. Um, um, I think things probably have gotten better and I think partially it's probably the case that um, um, uh, we're avoiding some things that, that might have caused controversy. Um, uh, so I recently did a little project where I was looking at um, commencement speakers and, and who actually is getting invited to, um, so not focusing on the disinvitation part, but the um, sort of initial announcements and who's being invited to be commencement speakers in the first place. And, and certainly one thing you worry about is, is um, and, and, you, and you, 
and commencement speakers fundamentally right, are, are not terribly important at the end of the day. And uh, they don't often say anything <coughs> terribly important during right, their speech. Right. This is, this is not the core feature of, of the university <laughs> of advancing knowledge. But, but I think they are. But the thing that you worry about with them is they're indicative of a larger cultural problem on a campus and how open is the campus to a set of ideas. And um, one thing striking, if you look across sort of hundreds of commencement speakers, for example, um, is that relatively few of them are, are people that are clearly associated with ideas um, in general or are likely to be saying or representing things that are very controversial. It's a, it's a lot of people who have inspirational personal stories um, or people who um, are wealthy alums or successful mm -hmm. alums of a university um, who get invited to give uh, commencement addresses. Um, and, and that's a safe strategy in lots of ways, right? If you invite an astronaut to give your um, commencement address um, because they have an inspirational personal story, that's valuable to students on the one hand, and it's also true they're probably not going to get disinvited right? yeah. um, and, and lead to controversy. On the other hand, if you bring somebody in who is associated with a set of ideas and views um, that are potentially controversial, then potentially students, some students are going to object and then... And then um, uh, you're going to shut that down, uh, potentially. I mean, it is a little striking, though, if you look at the set of commencement speakers who are identified with ideas and particular perspectives, they're overwhelmingly of the left. Um, so the, it's, it's a perfectly safe choice um, for a lot of universities to invite um, uh, people who aspire to be um, uh, presidential candidates in the Democratic Party. Um, um, it's not at all a safe choice to invite people who aspire to be presidential candidates in the Republican Party, um, uh, for example. So there's this asymmetrical quality as well. Yeah, Jonathan Haidt talked about this in the debate that we, I think this is going to be the <coughs> podcast before this one uh, that we hosted in Greenwich Village the other night. Uh, he said in New England in particular, there's been a number of commencement speeches given by right. Democratic politicians, yep. but not a single one by a Republican politician. And if you look where people like Mike Pence uh, yeah. has given his commencement speeches, I mean, it's it's very rarely a college in the Northeast. Uh, it's usually almost always a college associated right. with conservative ideas, uh, right. you know, uh, like Hillsdale, for example. It's this only safe place, right. safe to, to appropriate a word, safe space uh, <laughs> for a conservative to give a commencement speech. And I, I can sort of understand why presidents would want to invite uncontroversial speakers for right. commencement. You have your alumni in town, you have, sure. uh, this is a celebratory occasion, parents right. are in town, the risk just isn't worth the reward, and right. commencement speeches, as I said, have always been sort of blah. Right. Uh, right. It's rare that you get one like Steve Jobs gave back yeah, <laughs> in the yeah. late aughts that right. uh, gets millions of views on YouTube sure. for its insights and uh, motivations, but it does, they are the most vocal are most prominent people invited to a campus in any year. So to the extent that there's any disinvitations, I think it, it speaks to sort of the culture. No, and it's, and it's worrisome if, if, if I mean, one, it's, it can be worrisome as to what counts as safe and, and controversial, right? Mm -hmm. so, so if inviting Hillary Clinton to um, speak on your campus is the obviously safe and uncontroversial thing to do, um, but on the other hand, uh, inviting Ted Cruz to your college campus, the obviously controversial, not safe thing mm -hmm. to do, um, then we've got a bit of a problem as well as sort of what the scope of um, debate and, and ideas and arguments are going to look like on a college campus in general. Um, but it's even more worrisome if the reaction to that is to pull back and say, um, okay, we're, we're going to invite Snooki to be your commencement <laughs> speaker, uh, as Rutgers did at one point. instead of... Snooki is the Jersey Shore right. reality television. These are the moments that just make me think, okay, Earth has jumped the shark. Time no, to no, find no, another planet. So, you know, but on the other hand... That, you know, that they had protests when they invited Condoleezza Rice to come uh, do the commencement address, right? And so, so if you start looking around saying, okay, well, we don't want somebody that's going to cause protest and unhappiness because that's embarrassing and, and for a commencement speaker, um, then the safe choice not only becomes let's move left, but the safe choice also uh, becomes, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not quite fair, but say let's dumb it down mm -hmm. um, and, and we'll go with a, a movie star or we'll go with a... Um, um, a pop singer, um, and that will be your commencement um, speaker. And it's it's an unfortunate thing if our universities are at a point where um, the 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 thing, the kind of speaker that's acceptable um, to bring to campus that you know is not going to cause controversy 
um, is um, somebody who uh, you can count on to come and say things that aren't very interesting um, and and is not associated with anything that's very interesting. Um, um, that that's the only thing that's really going to be um, safe and tolerable on a college campus. Um, if, if that's where we are, um, then we've lost the crucial thing that college campuses are supposed to be about, which is um, places where people can argue about ideas um, and take ideas very seriously. Um, and it's a little embarrassing for an institution that's committed to the notion of we're going to take ideas very seriously. Um, and by the way, your commencement speaker is going to be a reality TV show star. Right? <laughs> well, I think we're going to have to leave it there because we got a we got a lunch to get to. Um, Professor Whittington, I want to thank you for, for joining me today. Thank and, you. And, appreciate uh, it. Sam, thank you as well Thanks. for um, coming and hanging out with your former professor. <laughs> uh, I, let's hope, uh, let's, let's try and, I mean, Princeton, again, I've been doing this since, what, 2010 when I first started as an intern here at FIRE. I haven't seen any big free speech controversy at Princeton where the administration has done something wrong, in my opinion, though I could be missing something. Uh, and the mere fact that they're assigning your book as the pre-read speaks to their concerns about uh, free speech and taking them seriously and the defense of Professor Lawrence Rosen uh, I think was admirable, but it'd be great to get their policies reformed. The two red light <laughs> ones, the four yellow light ones. Um, you know, when the University of Chicago did its committee uh, on, the, on free expression, it followed that up with policy right. re reformations because uh, you know you don't want to speak out of two sides of your mouth. So let's let's hope Princeton can do the do the same, and let's hope that's part of the conversation that is a result of this pre-read. Uh, so I'll thank you again for coming, Sam. Thank you for being here, and we'll continue the conversation. Thank you. Sounds good. Professor Whittington's book is Speak Freely: Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech, and it can be found wherever fine books are sold. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. As I remind you every week, this helps us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.